0: helped you over the course of the last couple weeks anybody what? huh <laughs> it's good to know that everyone's paying attention <laughs> repeat on who's there is all right has there been any specific examples about the stuff we've been talking about on Tuesdays with how to study the Bible that it's actually helped in any way shape or form Samuel
1: so for the first week of Bible study at Maslin. We, uh, the
0: topic we did was why study the Bible, and we got into some of the things. So we have been teaching on this. Nice, so nice, a lot. good, good. Any other examples? Maybe it's even helped you in your personal reading. Has you been reading throughout the week? <laughs> Does anything I do actually help anybody with anything? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's why there's no responses. Yeah. That's awesome. That's good to know. Maybe it'll there's nothing the going on
2: here. <laughs> yes, Emily. Well, I guess it was kind of like the examples that we went over was like I haven't run into necessarily any of that like in my Bible reading mm-hmm. yet, but like the examples that we went over helped me to like learn some of those doctrinal yeah. things like
1: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah.
0: No, it's good. And that's one of the reasons why we do those examples, because we can give you the instruction, but unless we actually show you in the Bible where that actually comes to life, then it's kind of useless in a way until you actually learn how to use it yourself. I'm telling you, this study changed my life. It changed everything that I do in the Bible. I mean, everything. And there's little things, little nuances that help you to see things a little bit differently. And even tonight, the stuff we're going to go over tonight, this is one of those things. And I want to show you an example of this. It's not in your notes. It's going to be something a little bit extra. But I want to show you guys this one. So this is how to study the Bible rule number five. Every word in every event. The every word in every event factor. And this one is big. It's huge. It's big. This one is major. Major. So God has chosen every word and every event in the Bible for a specific purpose. I don't know if you've ever thought about the Bible from this perspective or not. If you haven't, you need to. Every single Word. I don't care where it is within the pages of Scripture from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22. Every single word, God has chosen that word on purpose, and every single word matters. Every single word. Okay? This is very important, and I want to show you why it's important. But these are the three verses that show you that God put some great Emphasis upon this fact. Psalm 12, 6, and 7 on your study sheet, it says, The words of the Lord are pure words, as silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. Thou shalt keep them, O Lord, thou shalt preserve them from this generation. Forever, So God says from this verse that his words are pure. They're like silver that's tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. Now, when I was younger, my dad used to make um, fishing lures. He used to make jigs. And so he had this little thing that he would melt down the metal in. And it was so cool because I love to watch the metal just melt. It was just like butter. It would just melt, and it was really, really cool. And of course, you never touched it because if you did, you have to go to the hospital. But it got so hot that it would melt down the metal. And what was interesting about it is that every time it would, he would melt down the metal from either old jigs that he had or different, uh, different pieces of metal that he had, whenever he would melt it down, every single time it would rise up to the surface, it would be the impurities. And so you'd take the impurities and you'd skim them off and set them off to the side, let them cool down so you can throw them away, but then you're left over with pure metal. So you're getting getting all the, the dirt and the junk out of there. And then he would take that and he would have a mold and he would take that that silver, the silver looking metal, and he would pour it into the mold that would make the jig heads. It was so cool. I love doing that with them. And I remember that. And so when I think about this verse, I always think about that when I was a kid, that the words of the Lord are pure words. They are as silver tried in the furnace of earth, purified seven times. The Bible has gone through a purification process, especially in its translation into English. That is quite fascinating. When you go back and you study the history of the English Bible and how it came to be what it is today, you go back to Wycliffe's Bible. Just sometime if you want to write it on your study sheet and you can look it up later. But go up and look up John Wycliffe's English Bible. And if you take that and you look it up online and you compare it with your King James Bible, it's not going to be that far off, but you're going to notice little nuances here and there. that are like, huh, that's spelled a little bit differently, or that word's a little bit different. It went through a purification process and it literally went through seven different Bible translations until you got what we got from 1611 from the King James Bible, which was the basis of all. I mean, the entire known world was evangelized using the King James Bible for 400 years. The greatest time of missionary activity this world, world has ever seen happened with the King James Bible. God used it mightily for a period of 400 years throughout our our world. It was really cool, but it was purified as silver in a furnace and it was purified seven times. And God says in verse seven, thou shalt keep them. O Lord, thou shalt preserve them from this generation forever. That God is going to keep and preserve his words throughout all generations. It's a promise that he's made. Look at Proverbs 30, verse 5. Every word of God is pure. Every word. Every single word. He is a shield unto them that put their trust in him. And then John 21, verse 24 and 25. This is the disciple which testifieth of these things. This is John writing this and wrote these things. And we know that his testimony is true. And there are also many other things which Jesus did, the which, if they should be written, Everyone, I suppose, that even the world itself could not contain the books that should be written. Amen. This verse is amazing to me. John says that if he were or anybody else were to write down all the things that Jesus did, you could not contain all the things that Jesus did in, the, in, in every book. I mean, you could write book after book after book and you could fill the entire world with books and you would still never be able to fill all the things that Jesus did. So this means that your Bible, what you have that records what Jesus did, is exactly what God wanted you to know. Because right there it says, if they should be written, all the things that Jesus did, everyone, I suppose, that even the world itself could not contain the books that should be written. So that means that of all the things that Jesus did, all the things that happened within human history, God took all of it, skimmed it down, and gave you this book, which is pretty fascinating so that means that everything in this book is pretty significant important, especially the events with Jesus' life with Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So God gave you exactly what you wanted, what he wanted you to know, and that's pretty impressive. So every word, every event, God chose it specifically on purpose to communicate to us, and I think that's pretty amazing. All right, so this next point here. It is important to understand that the Bible does not contain the words of God. The Bible does not contain the words of God. I want to get that really clear right off the bat. The Bible does not contain the words of God. It is the word of God. It is. Believing this fact means you are trusting that God purposely guided every word that was written, chose every event that was recorded, and supernaturally preserved these words and events from any and all corruption. This should forever change the way you read, study, memorize, understand, trust, and submit to the Bible. Many Christians that are out there today, they do not have a final authority. What do I mean by that? They do not have a final authority. What do I mean by that? The Christians today do not have a final authority. Go ahead.
2: Um, they don't study out their Bible and know what it says, so they don't really follow it like they're huh our final authority is the bible they don't have final authority they don't use their bible how they just yes
0: that's okay that's okay you started the train so let's continue that train alana go ahead
2: kind of just like believe whatever they're told so like they believe more what man says rather than the bible yes but like, we need the Bible to be our final authority. So, like, if someone says something, we have to check and make sure it lines up with the Bible.
0: Absolutely. Good. You want to add that? Go ahead, Emily.
2: I was just going to say that, like, the Bible, you know, it doesn't change. It's where, where it changed, whereas if, like, you're going off of a person or what you find from some other, you know, manuscript or whatever, it's going to change. It's going to be edited, even if it's, like, off of a pastor, you know oh, well, I don't agree with what he said, so I'm going to go with what he said. Whereas, like, if you're using the Bible, it's point blank, that is the truth. Right, you know
0: right, absolutely, good. Anything else you want to add? A go ahead. lot of
1: Christians today don't like what Emily was willing to believe the whole Bible, and they'll pick and choose what they want to believe. And the Bible is our final authority, but if you don't believe it's your final authority, then it's never, and you don't treat it like that, it's never going to be yeah. authority.
0: Yeah, good. All three of
1: those is what I was
0: trying to say. Yes. All of that? Yes, please. All right. So I want you to think about yourself for a second. I want you to look in the mirror of of just you, your conscience between you and God. And I want you just to to think, what kind of a person are you? And I'm going to describe some different types of people. And I want you to think about it. And I want you to be honest about it. Because I've been in many different scenarios and many different conversations with people, and even myself, growing up in youth ministry, uh, growing up in church, in my dad's church growing up, I was very guilty of not having the Bible as my final authority. So there are people... That what they do is that they come into church, they sit down during Sunday school, they sit down for the message in the main service and everything that they're being taught from their pastor. They say, yes, I trust you. I trust what you have to say about this passage. I believe that I believe what you say. I see it in the scriptures and I do. I agree that that's what it is. But I believe what you say and I believe what I believe from this passage because you said it. Okay? there's a lot of people that do that, even in here. Some of you guys may do that with me, and I love the fact that some of you might do that. I love the fact that you can trust me, but I'm telling you, you're walking on dangerous territory. I was in a youth ministry where I trusted my pastor, but then something came along. There was a doctrine that started to come up in my youth ministry that I couldn't quite put my finger on. But when they began to teach me and say, this is what the Bible says, I was like, "Mm, that doesn't sound right. I can't really tell you why. I can't really put my finger on it. I can't necessarily go to the scriptures. But what you're describing to me is not based on what I thought I knew about God in the Bible. And it made me very unsettled. And so it started to cause me to be like, you know what? I need to figure out what do I actually believe about this? Most of the time, we don't do stuff like that until we're challenged. I knew of another guy who uh, I was in a, a conversation with him. And this is what he did. Yes, I read my Bible all the time. I'll, I'll read my Bible. But here's what I do. I read my Bible here. And then next to my Bible, I have a commentary. And this commentary is written by a well-renowned, very respected pastor or ministry leader that gives an explanation about different passages in the Bible. So I will read what the Bible says, but then I read over here about his interpretation of what that means in that passage, and then I will look back and then I will adopt what he says this passage means, and then this now becomes my understanding. Very similar to kind of like the pastor or you come in during Sunday school and you just trust everything that you're being taught. Other people don't even give a rip about that. They're just like, yeah, I just go to church and I just believe whatever the priest or the pastor or the the minister says, and I don't really know why, but I'm just here because I know that I need to be here or else I feel guilty. Or there's the person that says, I believe it because the Bible says it. I can show you exactly in scripture why I believe what I believe about salvation, because this is what the Bible says. I know that I'm saved because I believed what the Bible says. Yeah, I had a pastor that told me that, but I went to the Bible and says, but what does this actually say? Because I want to believe what this says. Yeah, commentaries can be helpful. Christian books can be helpful, but I really don't want to hear what that person has to say. I want to hear what the Bible has to say. It's a, there's a big difference. If the Bible is your final authority, this is it. This is the boss. You don't believe what you believe because this church teaches it. You don't believe what you believe because your ministry leader teaches it or your pastor teaches it. You believe it because that's exactly what the Bible says. That is very important. Most Christians do not have a final authority. Uh, Case in point, if you're defending what you believe and you go to the scriptures kind of, but then they trip you up on, well, I mean, kind of. Well, I'm not really sure, but my pastor, my pastor says this. Or, well, there's this book that I read. Okay, you're jumping to multiple authorities. People do this all the time. A great case in point of this, and I know I pick on the Catholic Church a lot. I don't mean to, but it's just one of those things. It's just one of the examples that pops in my head. But the Roman Catholic Church, they will believe portions of the Scripture. And they will go to the portions of the Scripture that back up the things that they believe. But there is nothing that the Roman Catholic Church teaches that would be biblical that I don't disagree with you get what I mean by that? So, for example, Roman Catholic Church teaches that Mary was a virgin. That is biblical. I totally believe that. They believe that Jesus was God come in the flesh. I totally believe that. But then they cross over the lines and they say, Well, Mary was a perpetual virgin. She never had any other kids. No, that's not what the Bible says. I can show you in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John where Jesus had brothers and sisters. I can show you in Luke where she said... I need a Savior. She was not holy. She was not perfect. Because the Bible says she was not holy and she was not perfect. They cross the line by saying, Well, when you take communion, you take Mass, you're literally consuming the body and blood of Jesus. And they will claim to go to a passage, but that's not what that passage teaches. And there's other things like that. Confessing your sins to a priest. The Bible never says you're supposed to confess your sins to to, to a priest. The only person that you can deal with sins with is Jesus alone. God, go to God yourself. So there's a lot of things like that where I disagree with the Roman Catholic Church. So people that are Catholics, they may go to the Bible and some things and say, I believe what the Bible says. But then they say, well, what about the topic of transubstantiation, which is literally believing that the wafer turns into the body, the flesh of Jesus, and the, the wine turns into the blood of Jesus. Well, that's just what the Roman Catholic Church teaches. That's the Pope's interpretation of this passage. Well, then, okay, I can't believe that. Because that's not what the Bible teaches. So that's the difference. So when you get to this topic, every word, every event matters. God gave us His book. Everything we believe must be based on what this book says. If you can't handle the word of God and go up to someone and say, I believe this about God because of this verse... Or I believe this about God because of this verse. I believe then you are going to get blown around with every wind of doctrine. You're not going to be able to stand. This is why we do discipleship in the senior high, because in discipleship, we show you the Bible says this and you can take it and you can believe that. And you can learn how to study it yourself. If you look at it from that perspective, then you'll be able to understand why every word matters. And I said this from the very beginning. If there is one thing in the Bible that is incorrect or contradictory, I will burn every Bible that I have and I will walk away from this church and never come back. And I am I promise you I will do that because I'm in it. I base my eternity based on what this book says, not anything that our pastors say, nothing that my family teaches me or that I grew up learning No, I believe what I believe about eternity and God and salvation, my sin, because of what this book says, period. And I don't care what anybody else thinks. I believe what the Bible says. That's what it means. Whether The Bible is your final authority. Now, this is important. And the reason why I'm trying to emphasize this is because not all Bibles are the same. We've been kind of building up to this point, and you may wonder why we as a church stand on the King James Bible. And the reason why we stand on the King James Bible is because we believe that the King James Bible is the Word of God. And it's not just some tradition that's been held by Baptists throughout church history. It is that way because I've done the research myself on this particular topic, and I am now confident that every word that I read is actually God's word. I did not believe that at one point in my life. I grew up at a church where my dad used the King James Bible growing up, and I was like in the kids' ministry when I was maybe second, third grade or something, and my church switched over from the King James Bible to the NIV. And so being raised in a youth ministry where we mainly use the NIV... We kind of fell into the mainstream Christian circles where what's the most reliable Bible translation that's out there? That was kind of the way that we ended up flowing down through that whole topic. So the NIV became more unpopular because because it's a phrase for phrase translation, which means if you go back to the Greek and to the Hebrew, they took phrases of the Greek and the Hebrew and they translated it over into English. But it's a phrase for phrase. Now, if you have an ESV Bible, ESV Bibles are a word for word translation. So you do get a better translation from that because you're taking every word as it is in the text from the the Hebrew and the Greek into English. The King James Bible is a word-for-word translation. Same thing. It takes that word from the Greek, from the Hebrew, and it translates it over into English. So you get an exact word-for-word translation of the texts. Now the issue becomes, where, where did those texts even come from? And how do you know that the Greek and the Hebrew have not been corrupted and defiled? Now you're starting to get into the deeper issues of manuscript evidence. So it's important to know, because source matters, it matters. I'll give you another great example of this. And this, this is a great illustration. So, I was in Costa Rica. I've shared this before, um, but it applies to this scenario. I was in Costa Rica, and uh, we were on a mission trip, and we went to go see this basilica. And so, this basilica was a beautiful Roman Catholic basilica. I mean, stained glass windows. It was, it was absolutely gorgeous. The people of this area were very superstitious. And so, there was this story, this myth, this legend uh, in this particular area. That the reason why this basilica was built in its particular location was because a long, long time ago, there was a child. This child had this little doll. This doll was put in her box every single night. Well, she woke up one morning and she lost the doll. It wasn't in the box. And so she's searching through the woods and she finds on this little rock the doll sitting there right on the rock. So she grabs it and takes it home plays with it, does all her stuff, takes it home. Nighttime she puts it back into the box, closes it. The next morning, opens the box, the doll's not there. So she goes back to that rock out in the woods and finds that doll sitting there again. Crazy. So she tells her mom. Her mom's like, "Oh my goodness, it's a miracle." So they contact the local priests, who contacts the Roman Catholic Church, and, and they end up sending all these people out to confirm this whole thing. And they say, this has been a miracle. It is an absolute miracle. We must build a basilica here because God's presence is here. So they did that. And then... What happened was that there was this little river that went by this area. And so people began to go there to get water because they believe that some sort of an angel or supernatural thing came down and this area was was just blessed. So the water must be blessed. Well, my mother is now sick at home and she's dying. I need to find something. I'm going to go to that river and I'm going to collect the water and I'm going to go and give it to my mother and she will live. So people began this whole superstitious belief. So they built the basilica, but they didn't want to ruin the water. So they built this pipe that redirected the water into this area where it went down into this drain and then it kind of continued on. People continued to end up filling containers with this water and everything. So when we were there, this little pipe that came out, there was this booth and this booth was, they were selling containers that you could put this water in so you could take it home. And it could be a small little container of a cross that you could wear around your neck. You can fill it up and take it home or bigger ones. And there's all sorts of prices with these things. Some version of the health department came in and they said, you know what, people are getting sick from this water. We need to test it. So they tested the water and they found traces of fecal matter in the water. Did that matter to the people? No. They believe that it was spiritual, that it was blessed, and they're going to take it home and it's going to, even though it's actually making people sick and they're dying because there's poop in the water. Christians today, very similarly, ignore the facts of manuscript evidence, and they consume water that contains traces of fecal matter in it without even really realizing it, because they're just following the traditions of people that have come before them rather than doing their own research. And not only is, does that come with doctrine, for sure, but that's also in the case of false doctrine and the Bible itself, because a lot of versions of the Bible out there are water. It contains the Word of God in there, but there's traces of poop in there that's making you sick and you don't actually, you're believing things you shouldn't be believing because you're taking it from that version of the Bible. So if you really believe that every word of God is pure and every word matters, then you better be sure that the Bible that you have, that you can trust every single word of that Bible. And that is a different discussion for a different day. But I want to show you some examples of what I'm talking about. So number point number one, every word, every word, all right? Every word, and point number two is every event. And every word is more of what I was just talking about, and I do want to give a couple examples of this. But what's really cool about the King James Bible, and I've tested this out, and you should test it out on your own, is that the King James Bible has been consistently translated from beginning to end, which means that you can do a legit word study, and you can find out what God meant by that word. A lot of versions of the Bible, you can't do that. If you want to do some sort of a word study, you have to go back to the Greek, go back to the Hebrew, search that word, and then trace it throughout the Bible. Well, your King James Bible is not like that. It is consistently translated. So if this particular Greek word has been translated this way, more often than not, it's translated that exact same way throughout the Scriptures. And where it isn't, you look at the context and you see why it's not. It's really cool. So when you want to do a word study on the word love, don't do a word study of the word love using an NIV or an NASB or an ESV. Use a King James Bible, and you will find the most incredible things by doing it that way. So based on that, there are certain phrases in the Bible that God repeats, and there's certain things that He's wanting to communicate throughout the Scriptures because every word matters. And so the word or the phrase, that day or the day or the day, or the day of the Lord, Every single time it's mentioned, it will teach you something about the time of the rapture to the close of the millennial kingdom. I don't care what context it's in. You will find in the Old Testament, I'm telling you, once I saw this, I'm like, oh my gosh, it's everywhere. I started reading through stuff in Psalms and Ezekiel and Jeremiah and Isaiah and that day, like the phrase that day or the day or the day of the Lord is always talking about the last days. So there's something God's wanting to communicate. It's really, really cool. Or those days, or the woman in travail, or the time of trouble. You look up that phrase in your King James Bible, and it's always going to teach you something about the tribulation period. And there's little nuggets in the Old Testament and in the New that God's wanting to communicate those things about the tribulation period. In the book of Psalms, you'll find the word Selah, Selah. So when you're reading through Psalms and you come across Selah, that means it's a time of rest. But it's interesting where Selah shows up in those particular Psalms because there's something that God wants to teach you about the time of rest during the millennial reign of Christ. It's something that the Jews were actually looking forward to. It's really neat. Or if you look in your Bible and you come across something where it talks about the third day or three days or three days later, you'll find that there's some sort of a picture that God's willing to communicate when it comes to resurrection and new life, because that's exactly what happened with Jesus Christ. In the Old Testament and in the New, the phrase or the word clouds, most of the time it shows up in the Bible. It is associated with the throne of God and the second coming of Christ. More particularly, it actually teaches you things about um, there's an event that's going to take place right before the second coming of Christ where God shows up. So in Revelation, when you look up the, the phrase clouds, it shows you that Jesus is going to come back, but he's going to circle the entire earth and that everyone is going to see him and everyone's going to wail because of him. and They're going to try to hide themselves in dens and caves and under rocks to try to hide themselves from the presence of the Lord because they know that he's coming back It's really neat. The word ox and the word ass in the Bible. um, I'm going to have one of you guys do this as part of the part we're going to work out a little bit. But when you see ox in the Bible, it's always something that you can learn from when it comes to uh, born-again believers. So people that are believers. This sounds like a little... This is key finder. Oh, that's funny. (laughs) Um, So when you see ox in the Old Testament or in the New Testament, uh, it refers to born-again believers or people that are believers and how they are hard, hard workers. When it comes to ass or a donkey or a jackass, uh, but in in the King James, it uses the phrase ass. This is always in reference to lost, sinful mankind. And there's some pretty interesting things when you find that in the scriptures. And then two of the most important words in the Bible when it comes to every word that God wants to use to teach you things are the words like and as, like and as. So these two words, you probably saw them first or you heard this concept in school. But like and as, so there, there's things that God wants to teach you through similitudes where he's trying to teach a deeper spiritual truth. And so just as we would use them in similes and metaphors, God does uh, similar, uh, similar things in the scriptures. That's kind of cool. All right, so we're going to talk more about that, especially with the example we're going to do in a little bit. But every word matters. Every single word matters. So God chose every single word on purpose. Now to every event, and we'll take a look at one of these. So every event. So you have, first of all, the days of Noah and Lot. So the days of Noah and Lot. And this is going to be another one that one of you guys are going to, one of the groups you're going to work on. But the days of Noah and Lot, so the world before Christ's second coming. So Jesus speaks about Noah and Lot in the days that they lived in Luke 17. And then when you do a little bit of reading in Genesis 6 through 8, chapter 13 and chapter 19, you can find out a lot about how the world is going to be in the last days because of what Jesus said. So you'll look at that a little bit later. Go over to Genesis 37. Genesis 37. We'll talk about the life of Joseph here real quick. Genesis 37. Genesis 37. All right. So in Genesis 37, this is the beginning of the story of Joseph. Now, I don't know if you've ever thought about this for a second, but it's worthy for a few seconds to think about this one. How many chapters does God dedicate to the first man and woman that he created? You can literally count them on one hand. Three. Three. Which ones? Well, it would be two,
1: three, four, because the first chapter man wasn't created
0: yet. Well, he puts it in there towards the end, 26 and 27 of chapter one. So I mean, one, it would be one, two, three, then? So, I mean, part of one, but we won't count it. So we'll just say entire chapters. So chapter two. Three. Chapter three. What about chapter four? Sure. Chapter five talks about the genealogy. So two solid chapters, and part of chapter one, part of chapter five. Chapter four, you start getting into Cain and Abel and some other things. Okay? So two chapters. Okay, how important are Adam and Eve? You know,
2: kind of start the human
0: race. So. I mean, kind of the beginning of, like, everything, you know. <laughs> I would say they're pretty important. God only gave them two solid chapters. How many chapters did God give to Joseph?
1: A bunch. Twenty-three.
0: 23, is it? Wait,
1: wait,
2: wait, wait, wait,
0: 37. 37, somebody count, you ready? 13,
2: I did the wrong math, is, is... wait, wait, right, wait.
0: Right. Let's just count, ready? I'm gonna, I'm gonna read through somebody count, ready? All right, so 37, 38, 39, 40, 41, 42, 43, 44, 45, 46, 47, 48, 49, 50. 15, 14, 14, 14. <laughs> 15 40, 30. Uh, I don't know. 28, 37. Bingo. All right, no. <laughs> All right. So 14, 14 chapters. Okay? 14 chapters. 14 chapters to Joseph. Joseph. Four. 14 chapters. Fourteen chapters. I mean, that's pretty, that's pretty huge. I mean, Jesus got probably the most out of anybody, if you think Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John combine all those together, which he deserves all of it. Mm-hmm. But 14 chapters to Joseph. I mean, as I would think about that, like, I mean, I would think that Adam and Eve probably should get more. I mean, what happened during that time? There was crazy things that God never recorded. He only gave them two solid chapters. Or what about like Noah? Noah got quite a bit, but he didn't get 14. What about Abraham? Abraham is pretty important. I mean, very important to the Jewish race, but he didn't get 14. Why did Joseph get 14? Spiritual picture. Spiritual, picture. Spiritual, picture. Spiritual picture of Jesus. See, this is where the Sunday school answer could have come into play. Jesus. Yes, you're right, everybody. Jesus. Yes, okay. So, this is really interesting to me because this gives you an idea. That this guy was super important, but he wasn't super important just for any weird reason. The events that God recorded in the life of Joseph they detail more than 150 different things that parallel perfectly to the life of Jesus Christ. I mean, perfectly. I mean, it's it's unbelievable. At first, I heard that and I'm like, yeah, I don't know, whatever. And then I did. I actually studied it out for myself. It is unbelievable. So you guys are in Genesis 37. I want you just to see just a few of these things. Okay? Okay. So, look in uh, chapter 37. Now, take a look at verse... um, All right, verse 3. Okay? Now, Israel loved Joseph more than all his children because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a coat of many colors. And when his brethren saw... "...that their father and loved him more than all his brethren, they hated him and could not speak peaceably unto him." Okay. The children of Israel. Okay? Pharisees, Sadducees, religious leaders. When God the Father places more love upon Jesus, a son in his old age, his brethren, Sadducees, Pharisees, rest of Israel hated him, Jesus, and could not speak peaceably unto him. I mean, this is the kind of stuff when I read the Bible, I'm like, whoo, just got goosebumps. That is unbelievable. And that's just the first one. Okay. And then it says, and Joseph dreamed a dream and he told it to his brethren, told it his brethren, and they hated him yet the more. So when Jesus was preaching and speaking unto the nation of Israel, telling them about the things of God, they hated him more and more and more. And he said unto them, "Here I pray you, this dream which I have dreamed. For behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and lo, my sheaf arose and also stood upright, and behold, your sheaves stood round about and made obeisance to my sheaf, or bowed down, every knee shall bow, and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord of the glory of God the Father. That's not a coincidence. And his brethren said unto him, Shalt thou indeed reign over us? Pharisees almost said the exact same thing in Luke nineteen fourteen, Or shalt thou indeed have dominion over us? And they hated him yet the more for his dreams and for his words. Oh my gosh, it's amazing. And then verse 9. And he dreamed yet another dream and told it his brethren and said, Behold, I have dreamed a dream more. And behold, the sun and the moon and the eleven stars, which the same pictures used for the nation of Israel in Revelation 12, 1 and 2, made obeisance to me or bowed down because he was, he was basically the Lord over them. And he told it to his father and to his brethren. And his father rebuked him and said unto him, What is this dream that thou hast dreamed? Shall I and thy mother and thy brethren indeed come and bow down ourselves to thee, to the earth? And his brethren envied him, but his father observed the saying. The Sadducees and Pharisees, they envy. The same word is used in Mark fifteen ten. And then look at this next part. And his brethren went to feed the father's flock in Shechem. So they went to go feed the flock. And Israel said to Joseph, Do not thy brethren feed the flock in Shechem? Come, and I will send thee unto them. And he said unto them, Here am I. And he said unto them, Go, I pray thee, see whether it be well with thy brethren, and well with the flocks, and bring me word again. So he sent him out of the vale of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. All right. God the Father with God the Son in heaven. You have the nation of Israel taking care of God's flock. God the Father says, all right, son, I want you to go and I want you to go to your brethren and I want you to see how they are doing and how the flock is and bring me word again. Coincidence? I think not. I think not. It is absolutely not. And it goes one thing after another. I mean, you come to the next part. They conspire to slay him. What do you think the Pharisees and Sadducees did to Jesus? They wanted to kill him. They threw him into a pit. When Jesus died, his soul went into the pit, into the heart of the earth. I mean, we could just keep a going. It's unbelievable. So there's over 150 of these things. So God was teaching the nation of Israel, this is what you're going to do to my son. And I'm telling you, there's some Jews that believe God and believe the Old Testament, that when that happened, they saw it and they believed in their Messiah. It's amazing. So God dedicated 14 chapters Fourteen chapters of Joseph, but he did it on purpose because it's a perfect picture of his son and what God was going to do in future generations. It's really, really cool. All right. So that's the life of Joseph. Life of Moses. So the life of Moses, the third thing under every event, is really an example of the life of Jesus Christ. And there are some great leadership lessons from the life of Moses. Let's take a look at a couple of these verses. Somebody look at Deuteronomy 18.15. Deuteronomy 18.15. Go ahead, Sam. You got that one. And then Acts 3.22, Alana. And then, Rachel, you can do the other one. The Acts 7.37. So there's something specifically that Moses said about himself and about the Messiah that is brought up again in Acts 3 and in Acts 7. All right, Deuteronomy 18.15. Listen to this.
1: The Lord thy God will raise up unto thee a prophet... From the midst of the of thy brethren, like unto me, unto him ye shall hearken.
0: Okay, so that prophet is it capitalized? Okay, it is a capital P in Deuteronomy 18. So God is going to raise up unto them the nation of Israel a prophet like unto me. Well, think about Moses for a second. Moses, when he first went to his people to redeem them and rescue them, was he accepted or rejected? He was rejected. When Jesus came the first time to his people to redeem them, was he accepted or rejected? He was rejected, just like Moses. Moses goes away for 40 years and then comes back to confront Pharaoh, Antichrist, the Antichrist, who has the nation of Israel in bondage and then redeems them supernaturally and wins the war. At the second coming of Moses. Okay, come on. Are you guys with me on this one? This is freaking amazing. <laughs> this is absolutely amazing. So there's things like this that happen that are just huge. So listen to Acts eight or Acts three twenty two.
2: For Moses truly said unto the fathers, a prophet shall the Lord your God raise up unto you of your brethren, like unto me. Him shall ye hear in all things whatsoever he shall say unto you.
0: Okay, so he's talking about Jesus. And then Acts three thirty seven. This is
2: that Moses which said unto the children of Israel. A prophet shall the Lord your God raise up unto you of your brethren like unto me, Them shite.
0: Okay, perfect. Talking about Jesus. So Jesus is the fulfillment of that. So there are so many things from Moses and his life that you can learn about Jesus and about everything in the way God unfolded the way he did. And then lastly, for every event, the Exodus and wilderness journey to the promised land. The Exodus paints a beautiful picture of the gospel and the subsequent spiritual journey. This is so cool. So cool. Go to the table of contents of your Bible. I want you to see this real quick. Some of you may have heard this before, but I want you to see this. This is pretty amazing. So, the table of contents, where it lists all the books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. There you go. All right. So, this is really neat. This is really neat. Okay. So, Genesis. Genesis It's the book of beginnings. God started everything. And what's crazy is that the book of Genesis ends with the death of Joseph. And his bones were carried to Egypt. Once Exodus unfolds, Exodus, now Israel is under an evil taskmaster. They are in bondage, and there is absolutely no way out. They are slaves. They are in bondage, and there is absolutely no way out. And when you study Egypt in the Bible, it is always a picture of the world. It is a picture of sin. And right now, the nation of Israel, during this book, they are enslaved until, until something had to die. What was it? The spotless lamb, the Passover. So it wasn't until the Passover where a spotless lamb, which by the way, when you read Revelation, Jesus called the spotless lamb, the lamb that was slain from the foundation of the world. just as kind of a side note. I'm sure it doesn't mean anything. and There's no coincidence whatsoever. So a spotless lamb is now shed... And the nation of Israel is now set free. They are no longer in bondage at all whatsoever by Egypt, the world's sin. And now they are set free to be their own people out in the wilderness. And then now while they're out in the wilderness, you have the book of Leviticus. The book of Leviticus teaches people, God's people, how to live in relationship with God while in the wilderness. How to be holy. And that's exactly what a born-again believer who's been set free by the blood of a spotless lamb needs to learn, is how to walk with God and how to be holy in the midst of the wilderness of the world. And then Numbers. Numbers is the entire story about how the disobedient nation of Israel, they were at one number, and then as they walked around in disobedience because they refused to obey God, they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years, and their numbers shrank. They could not grow. And so if you let the world and the wilderness dictate what you're going to do, you will shrink in your Christian walk. There's no way around it until that generation completely passes. And now you have the book of Deuteronomy, the book of Deuteronomy. God teaches the nation of Israel how to obey and it's to obey because you love God. So in your Christian walk, until you learn how to obey God because you love him, it's never going to work. You're going to serve God in your flesh, and you're going to get weaker and weaker and weaker, and you're going to shrink. But once you learn, I am going to obey God because I love Him, now you can go. Now you're ready to go and conquer the Promised Land. Joshua, which by the way, the Hebrew name for Joshua, if you translate that into directly into Greek and then to English, is the name Jesus. So Joshua and Jesus are the same name. So now you have a book titled Jesus, and God's people are following Jesus to go into the Promised Land and to conquer what God always intended for them. Okay, that's just, that's just absolutely amazing. So the Gospels right there from Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and then into Joshua. And you could just keep going. It's amazing. And we don't have time to keep going, but that's just one example of how the gospel is pictured just from the titles of the book in the Old Testament. So God even ordered your Bible in this way on purpose in order to teach people more about his own heart and about himself. Every word, every event matters. Okay, so now let's talk about it. All right, so we're going to split. So we got this side of the room, we got this side of the room. Okay, so we're going to split into groups. You guys can do groups of whatever. I think last time we did it, we did two rows apiece. That worked out well. So if we do, like, these first two rows and then the second two rows, then people can kind of fill in these two rows here with you guys here. We're going to have to give you some more people. So let's do let's do this. You three right there, why don't you join Lydia and Isaac. Good. You guys can do that. Okay. So everyone over here, I'm going to let you guys have the first choice. What do you want? Number one or number two? The days of Lot and Noah, or do you want the ox and ass? I think they should take the right i the wrong answer to that question. <laughs> Come on, Trent. What's the choice? It's all on your shoulders. Which one do you want? Number one. Number one. Okay. All right. So this side of the room has number one. we am going to give you guys a little bit of time. You're not going to be able to read all the details of Genesis 6 through 8 and 13 and 19. So just start reading through them. You can kind of skim them and get some of the ideas. All right. So this side of the room, the two groups that are over on this side, go ahead and take number one. Read Luke 17 and just kind of skim through Genesis 6 through 8, 13 and 19 and start to list certain things about the days of Lot and Noah. All right? You all over her, you guys are going to do the ox and ass. So I gave you some good cross-references you can take a look at and tell me what you find. All right, go to it. for a couple minutes and then I want to show you one more example that um, really was a huge one for me itch I can't say that now I have to trumpet every time I do it itch okay alright so group number one that is all y'alls
1: oh wait we were supposed to Aren't we split up into two there's, Yeah, there's
0: two groups, but okay, come on, come on, come on, come on, All come right. on, come on, come so, on, come on, come on. So,
1: the days of Noah and Lot, Luke 17, 26 through 37, and then Genesis chapter 6, 7, 8, 13, and 19. So, a couple of parallels our group got, um, and it makes it pretty easy in Luke 17. It describes the days of Noah and the days of Lot just like they were um, at those times. And Genesis 6 kind of explains the same thing of how the people acted in those times, and so did... In Noah's case, in in Genesis 13, it also kind of parallels um, in Lot's case. But in chapter 7, another parallel you can make is that's when, you know, God tells Noah about the ark. And, you know, everybody can get on the ark for salvation. And you can parallel that to, well, Jesus is our salvation now. And when, in Luke 17, it starts talking about... um, in the last days, how they're gonna be before like the rapture. Well, in Noah's days, in chapter six, it explains how the people were. Chapter seven, there comes salvation. And then in chapter eight, Noah ultimately gets saved by the ark. Yeah, everybody else gets destroyed, which you can see in the picture of Luke 17 of the rapture, and then everybody gets left. Yeah. Um, and then in chapter 19, it's God judging Sodom and Gomorrah, which ultimately God takes Lot and his family out, saves them but then Sodom and Gomorrah are destroyed just like you could parallel it to us being raptured out.
0: Okay. All right, good. And actually, even more accurately, while that is true, and that's a good devotional application, doctrinally, there is going to be a rapture right before the second coming of believers during the tribulation that the ark and the pulling out of Lot are actually those saved people during the tribulation that are alive that are pulled out right before the second coming. So, it's kind of cool. But that just takes a little bit deeper. Yeah. Yeah. But yes, you are correct in principle. Yes, very good. Very good. Okay. Anything else you guys want to add to that? Okay. Another big thing, just in general, was the fact that people don't give a rip about what God has to say. God's like, your lives are going to end. Listen to the message that I have for you. I'm just reading right now my devotions in Revelation. And it talks about some of the plagues that unfold. And things are going to get so bad during the tribulation that evil things are going to happen. And when they happen, where people are literally being tortured because of what's going on between the pestilences and things that are happening, that they're actually going to blaspheme God more. They're going to hate God more because of the things that he's doing to try to get their attention. It's going to be really bad. So as it was in the days of Lot and Noah. And then just as also another side note, and this can be something that you can just study out later. Genesis chapter 6. You have angels coming down and procreating among women and creating a race of giants. As it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be in the days of the coming of the Son of Man. Mm. It's going to happen again. And it probably is already starting to happen. Just as a side note. Okay, moving on.
1: All right. (laughs) I'm sorry. Football. All right, good.
0: Numero dos. Okay, group two. Whichever wants to go. You?
2: Gavin wants to speak.
0: Well, I don't know. Gavin, Rachel no, do. Rachel had her hand up. Uh, yes, <laughs> Rachel's got it. <laughs> Rachel's got it. All right, go ahead, Rachel.
2: <laughs> <laughs> okay, so basically our verses were talking about, like, the ox and the ass and how they're completely, like, two different things. And if you, like, put them together, it's just not going to go well because, like, he was talking about the believer and unbeliever and, like, they don't see eye-to-eye. So, um, it's like, unequal I
1: mean, you
0: yeah, very good. So the, what is it, 1 Corinthians? Yeah, no, 2 Corinthians 6 talks about, you know, that's one of the passages we go to when it talks about, okay, when you're considering someone to date or someone to marry, that you shouldn't be dating an unbeliever because the Bible talks about it. Now, that's just one application because there's more to it than just that. But that's why God said in the Old Testament, you're not, you should not plow with an ox and an ass together. It's not going to work out. And here, it's a great spiritual picture of in the future. If you really want to work hard for the Lord, don't marry a lost person. If you marry a lost person, you are not going to do anything for the Lord. Mm. It's going to be a lot harder to plow that ground. You need to marry someone who's an ox. So that way two oxen together can do way more. So that's a really good illustration. It's kind of cool. All right, what else? You guys want to add something else to it?
1: Yeah, to uh, I
0: do <laughs> I don't know. Oh, no. Do you?
1: Really. I
0: don't know. Well, she wants to. She can. OK.
2: I don't know. I just kind of looked at it a little bit differently. I kind of looked at these in like chronological order, as, okay. as far as where they were. Yeah. So it starts out in Exodus 13. Like, it defines what the ax is. They still need the blood of the lamb to redeem yeah. for their sins. It's a picture of the lost world. And then Deuteronomy twenty two we see that the ox and the ass are in constant dissension or conflict with one another. Mm-hmm. And then First Corinthians nine we see that the ox are essentially um that in this dissension, in this conflict, they're the ones that cannot be quieted. They're the ones that come out. Mm-hmm through it and then in second corinthians we see that you know the ox is limited by the ass and the influence of it yeah and then first timothy we see that those ox for their success are then rewarded yeah so it's kind of interesting like it could represent a lot of things it could represent like the timelessness of our word the Mm -hmm. fact that it's been preserved despite a lot of craziness sure um and the fact that you know the battle of the throne we know the ending we know where the ones coming out yeah so yeah yeah
0: that's good. Yeah, and especially when 1 Corinthians 9 and 1 Timothy 5 really talk about that an ox is a minister of the Lord. So that's, to, that's huge, too. But even, I love Agar, Exodus 13, thirteen First of all, I love it because it's thirteen thirteen. 13, 13, <laughs> I said that! I love that. I thought I was Numbers.
2: stupid, but I said a, that. I, yeah, yeah but in
0: it, I mean, but you, but you start to talk about it. The big thing is, is that, okay, if you're a lost person, you're an ass. Ooh, got him. I mean, that's what it says, right? But if you're an ass, You can become an ox, and in order for an ass to become an ox, you have to be redeemed by a spotless lamb. Yes, sir. That is freaking amazing. I said that twice tonight, and I meant it both times. It is absolutely amazing. So, that's the closest we'll get to Christian custom. All right. Okay, I want to show you one more thing. One more thing, okay? If you need to go, go ahead and leave, but I do want to show you one more thing that's just pretty amazing. Okay, so this goes back to the every word thing, all right? So, um, again, I want to just show you this because this is one of those things that is just absolutely huge. Huge, huge. Huge. Okay, huge, huge. 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 (laughs) Debate tonight, huge. It's going to be huge. It's going to be the best thing ever. Okay, so I want you to see this. All right, so on the left-hand side, we have the King James Bible. On the right-hand side, I have the NIV. And you can look up other versions of the Bible. I can show you a few of them. But I wanted you to see this because this one is big, okay? Isaiah 14, verse 12 how art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? Now, who is that talking about? Lucifer, Lucifer okay? Which would become the devil and then Satan. Lucifer's name means son of the morning. Lucy, Lucy, like my daughter, or Lucas, is a form of that word. It means light bearer. And so Lucifer was the anointed cherub that covered God's throne. He was a light bearer. That's why it was his, name. his name was Lucifer. So the name Lucifer itself is not evil. Just so that way you know that. So Lucifer, son of the morning, how art thou cut down to the ground which didst weaken the nations? For thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. That's where God's throne is. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. God's throne. Remember we talked about clouds. I will be like the most high. Yet thou shalt be brought down to hell to the sides of the pit. And it kind of keeps going. So this talks about the pride of Lucifer and what led to sin and the origination of sin and his fall. Okay? Now, knowing that, take a look at the NIV. How you have fallen from heaven. What is that? Morning Morning star. Morning star. Lucifer. Morning star. Who is the morning star? Let me show you. If you look in the King James Bible and you type the phrase morning star. Shows up in two places. Revelation 2.28 and Revelation 22.16. I'll just show you one of them for now. 22.16. Okay. I, Jesus, have sent mine angel to testify unto you the things, or these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright and morning star. Jesus is the morning star. But in the NIV, Isaiah 14, 12, the morning star is Lucifer. Does that not freak you out for a second? Because the whole plan of the devil is to be the anti-Christ. And so in the NIV, you have that exchange... That's a huge difference. That is a huge difference because basically they're saying that Jesus is Lucifer. And there are people that, based on Isaiah 14, verse 12, they are called Luciferians and they actually worship Lucifer as part of a New Age movement and they use passages like that to prove what they believe. There's more to it than just that, but I just wanted to show you one example of how the NIV... Every word matters. Because in your King James Bible, it's clear from the context that passage is talking about Lucifer. But Lucifer is not the morning star. Jesus is. And that's why there's coming a day in the future where the world is going to receive the Antichrist as their Messiah, as their Savior, as their Jesus. And it's exactly what just happened in the NIV translation of the Bible. Again, I'm not picking on the NIV. I'm just telling you this is one of the reasons why I stay away from the NIV, because those two things are polar opposites. I mean polar opposites. Things that are different are not the same, and I'm telling you that is one clear example of one reason why I will not pick up an NIV ever again. And it's interesting to see what other versions of the Bible say, because you can't... And and this is the whole point of me at at the beginning when I was talking about this. Every word matters. I need to be able to trust that every word in this book is God's word. If I can't trust that this is God's word, then how do I know that what it's actually teaching me is true? This is a big deal, and this is not something to be answered lightly. And I'm telling you, just because you've grown up in a church that uses the King James... I'm not saying you just use the King James because. No, I want you to be able to use the King James, being confident that it is your final authority. Because there's a lot of doctrine that's riding on the fact on, on what you actually end up, end up using. And there's a lot of people, I'm not saying you can't be a good Christian and use a different translation of the Bible. I'm not saying that at all. I was saved out of the NIV. I was. I heard the gospel and I was saved in a Sunday school class that, that preached and taught out of the NIV. I memorized the NIV for years. I knew, I know good Christians today that use other versions of the Bible. That's not my point. For me, when it comes to studying God's Word, I want to know what God actually said, and I need to be able to count on every single word, and I can't do that when I see stuff like that. You know what I'm saying? I want to make that clear, okay? All right. So there's more to it than just that, but I'm telling you, you need to be confident in the Word that you have. So, no matter what you do, make sure you believe what you believe because you believe it. You've actually studied it out yourself, and you know for sure that that is actually true. Okay. If you got any questions about that, please do not hesitate to contact myself or any other leaders about it. Um, it's not an easy issue to go through, and there's a lot of questions that come out of it. I had to I had to come to this point on my own, but I had to do my research on it, and uh, and I'm glad that I did. Um, but that's why at our church, you're never going to. There's a lot of Baptist churches and a lot of King James churches that will ridicule other people for using other versions of the Bible. We will never do that. We never do that. In fact, if you ever heard Pastor Tom from the pulpit, he says, if you've come into the room today and used another version of the Bible, you are safe here. And if anyone gives you a hard time about it, they're jerks, and we need to rebuke them because that's not what it's about. People um, using the Bible, it doesn't matter what version of it is, if they use that as their final authority, they're going to be fruitful. They're going to be fruitful, so we're not going to be ignorant of that. But I know when it comes to studying the Bible, I've done my research, and I know where I've landed on that issue, and that's something that each of you need to do. Don't take my word for it. You need to figure it out for yourself. But it's definitely a journey that's worthwhile. Alright? And that's just a side note. But this stuff's going to, going to come up again and again as we go through other rules of Bible study, where it's appropriate, and I just want to put that out there before we go any farther. Okay, let's pray. Let's be done. Who would like to pray? Go for it, Rachel. Amen. Thank you.